Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. On this episode, we have an active duty Navy commander who's actually a SEAL. His name's John McCaskill. He's getting ready to transition out. He's doing some phenomenal things right now in that transition with mindfulness, meditation, and meditation. He explains the difference between those two. Phenomenal guy doing amazing things for veterans and uh, looking forward to meeting him down the road. Really appreciate everyone listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio. Thank you. It means a lot. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. This episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We have active duty Navy SEAL officer John McCaskill, soon to be retiring later this summer. John has served as both an enlisted sailor and as a commissioned officer, which is what he's doing right now. He's seen the world from both sides, and we'll hear a little bit about that today. He graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 2001 and went straight to SEAL training. Many of you know that as BUDS training, and it's some of the most hardcore training on the face of the planet. When those guys earn that trident, they don't hand them out like Cracker Jacks. They hand them out when you earn them, and Navy SEALs that we've had on our show before, the best of the best, and it It's great to have John here. He has served in various roles in the SEAL teams around the world, primarily in the the Middle East. We're going to hear a little bit about that today as well. But now what John's doing, and he's up in Virginia at the moment, hopefully he's going to end up in Colorado, which is what he wants to do. He's starting to look towards his transition. And when why not? Now's the time. He's got a few months. He's probably been looking at it for a while, dreaming about that day. But He's serving right now as the Deputy Executive Director for Veterans Path, which is, well, we're going to hear more about that. I don't even want to talk about it. I want John to tell us about it. But it's basically to educate veterans and transitioning service members about the life-changing and life-saving practices of meditation and mindfulness. And I know we're in the middle of this coronavirus. John, as all Navy SEALs, was getting a little bit stir-crazy, so he's out and about. But he's staying away from people. And we're getting his story here today. And I just want to say he's married, has two young children. They're safe and sound. There's no issues there. John's safe and sound. And, and we're, we're doing this remotely. So we don't have to wear these masks. And I just I'm, on, <laughs> I'm honored and humbled to have John here on Straight Out of Combat Radio. Hey, John, how's it going, brother? Oh, man, it's going well, as, as well as can be in this crazy world as we were kind of talking right before the show, before you hit record. Yeah, I was getting a little start crazy. I had to get out of the house and, and get out to a a beautiful local park. Luckily, there's not a whole lot of people out. I am staying, you know, my social distance away from other people. So I'm, I believe that I'm doing my part in being socially responsible. But yeah, it's also tough to stay home all day, every day. I've got two little ones, as you mentioned before, who I love, you know, I love them to death, but it's taxing. You get a little bit of cabin fever. So I had to get out. Thanks for having me on the show, John. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. And I'm glad you're here and I'm glad your family's safe. And it is a crazy world. We can maybe talk about that as we go along. But the cool thing about you is you've, you know, you've been serving the Navy. This is going to be 20 years, right? 23, 20, almost 24 in September. Well, good for you and congratulations. I'm glad you're still with us. Thanks, I know man. You, 
I know you've lost friends in the defense of our great nation. And you've seen it from both sides. You know, you started your military career as enlisted and then went into the officer ranks. But before we even get there, tell us about the McCaskill household. What it was yeah, like so, Yeah, so that McCaskill household, when I was younger, I am one of five children. Got three older sisters and a younger brother raised by two phenomenal parents who are still together, which, you know, is a rarity. But they actually moved us here from South Africa. I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, and we moved to the States when I was seven, moved to Louisiana of all places, mm-hmm. kind of uh, the small, those little small town in the center of the state, Ruston, Louisiana. My dad got a teaching visa to come over and teach at Louisiana Tech University for one year. He's an architect came over to teach for that one year. And the plan was to go back to South Africa afterwards, potentially. And we ended up uh, really never going back. I mean, we went back to visit, but we became Americans. On my 19th birthday or, or right around my 19th birthday, I got my U.S. citizenship. So 12 years later, graduating high school, went through the whole school system here in the States, ended up playing basketball and football and all those different sports as a young kid. But then as I got into high school, I was a runner and track and cross country distance runner. And that kind of helped to lay the foundation for a work ethic that I I don't think I would have had otherwise. My coach was kind of like my second father to me. I still stay in close contact with him to this day. I mean, what are we now? It's, I don't know, 35 years later or something crazy. (laughs) Well, man, time flies. That's definitely not real good math, but. (laughs) I get it, I get it. Yeah, so anyway, graduated high school there. Sorry, man, I'm sitting in this park and we've got F-18 jets flying over. So I'm located pretty close to Oceana Air Base. Hopefully you can hear me okay over the jets. No, we can hear them. We can, yeah, we can hear you too. So it's all good, John. Right on. Right on. Well, hey, man, nothing better than the sound of jets, man. That's the sound of freedom. I've seen bumper stickers that say I love the sound of jets, and I fully agree. I do love the sound of jets. So anyway, graduated high school, enlisted in the Navy, wanted to be a SEAL right right off the bat. But then as I was going through a school down in Pensacola, Florida, ran into an officer recruiter who said that I had the high school grades and I could go to the academy. And little known fact, uh, and granted, my information might be dated here, but back then, what was it, 1997, there were 75 slots directly from the enlisted ranks in the Navy and 75 slots directly from the enlisted ranks in the Marine Corps directly into the Naval Academy. Wow. So I ended up getting a Secretary of the Navy nomination and ended up getting picked up to go to the Naval Academy. So I I didn't serve very long as an enlisted guy, you know, just shy of a year, but realized that the officer route was what I wanted to do. I don't say that the officer route is for everybody, and I definitely don't say that the officer route is better than the enlisted ranks. I don't believe that. I believe that there's pluses and minuses to both sides, but I ended up going the officer route, went through the academy, and then ended up going out to buds, as you already mentioned in the intro. So well let me let me uh, ask uh, let me ask you this. You know, coming from your parents' lineage is from South Africa and you know, and you told us a little bit about how y'all got here. Did you have any people or relatives in your background that were military in the military in South Africa or you know I, Yeah, sure did. Uh, tell my us about that. My, Yeah, it's kind of a funny story, actually. My grandfather on my father's side, so my paternal grandfather, he served in World War II in Northern Africa as a South African. And my father, my father was not in the military, but he went to a boarding school that was very militant when he was growing up. And he ended up because of the way things were in South Africa when I was, you know, I was seven. But if I was going to grow through the entire school system there in South Africa, 
when I graduated, I would have been conscripted into the South African military. Right. And my father didn't want me to go into the military. Not at that time anyway. I mean, I was seven years old. So that was one of the reasons they moved us from South Africa to the States. And one of the reasons we stayed was they didn't want me to get drafted. And then I came over here and I voluntarily joined the U.S. military. But <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, so it is a crazy yeah, a little irony. <laughs> Seriously. And so. Well, that's a pretty cool story that, you know, that your granddad, I guess it was against the Germans in North Africa. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, pretty historic battle, World War II, right? Yeah, definitely. So you're in the Navy, you're in the Naval Academy. We've all seen the movies about the Naval Academy, but tell us, tell us what that was like for you, John. <laughs> yeah, I remember distinctly on I-Day, I-Day is initiation day, is kind of the, the first day of your plebe summer. I remember distinctly standing down on the track for our, our I-Day, we did it, the ceremony down on the track because where they normally do the ceremony was under construction. So I was standing down the track and I was like, what the hell did I get myself into? This is going to be a long four years. I definitely made a mistake here. I don't belong here. And then I went through plebe summer, which was very similar to boot camp. You know, I have to memorize a lot of stuff. There's a lot of physical training, people in your face yelling at you. Nothing outside of the ordinary that anybody else who's gone through the military training hasn't seen before. Then I got into the academics of plebe year, which is, you know, your first year there. And I'd been out, right? I'd been out of academics for a year now because I didn't had that time of enlisted time. So in all honesty, and during that time as an enlisted guy, it's not like I was reading chemistry books and calculus books, right? Right. So so I get into freshman calculus and I get into freshman chemistry and I, I thought, yep, I have definitely made a mistake. I, I was a big fish in a small pond. I was a good athlete and a good student in the small town of Ruston, Louisiana, but then coming into this big pond, small I, fish, I definitely yeah. felt, yeah, I was a small fish, right? I ended up doing all right, but that was only because I, I leaned heavily on my classmates to help me through tutoring. And once I kind of got a handle on things, I ended up doing fine. And yeah, there's definitely tough times at the academy. It's academically rigorous. It's physically tiring. You know, you got to play a sport of some sort, whether it's intramural or, or on the actual varsity teams. You've got to have good academics. You've got to be involved in extracurricular activities. And then there's also the military side. So you're doing your military drill, you're doing your military memorization, learning all the stuff about all the different services and all the different branches, et cetera, within the services. So you're, you're cramming a lot of information. Can you think of one said, thing, John, can you think of one thing in, in the Naval Academy that just yeah. stands out where you went like, holy cow, you just had an aha <laughs> moment or like you were like, what did I do? Or I'm glad I'm here because there's one thing that you and not the Army Navy game, yeah. something different from that. <laughs> You know, the just, Army Navy games. The Army Navy game is great. Uh, I still <laughs> love going to that game. Yeah, uh, even you know, twenty years after I graduated yeah. the academy, it's still fun. You guys but, are crazy. Yeah. I'm an Army guy. <laughs> remember that. So yeah, yeah. Tell right. us, you know, can you think of one thing that just stands out the most at the Naval Academy where you felt part of that tradition? Yeah. So something that they started at the end of my freshman year it was essentially a crucible. It was a weekend long thing where. You went through physical training as part of your company of plebes, your refreshment. You ran around with logs, you ran around with boats. And in between the evolutions, the upper class would read a Medal of Honor citation mm. from the Medal of Honor book. And granted, this is before 9-11, right? So this is all before Iraq and Afghanistan. So we're hearing about people who won Medals of Honor in all the wars of you know that America had been involved in. So 
they were a lot of them were old. Even that history, even those that old history, rung. You know, I, I felt it. I was like, "Damn, man, people have really gone." And all the citations. Sorry, I should back this up. All the citations were from Naval Academy grads, yeah. and so I was like, "Damn, you know, I've really, uh, I'm really part of something major." And that was what kind of drove it home to me because. Up until that point, I was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to wrap up this first year and then I'm probably going to bounce out because you can, you can actually do your first two years and then get out. Theoretically, you can even do all four years and then decide to turn down your commission and go enlisted, which, you know, I've been an enlisted guy before, so it wasn't, it wasn't a bad thing. It wouldn't have been any skin off my nose. Yeah. It was that weekend that really drove it home to me that, Hey, I'm part of something much bigger than myself. We're all in this together. We will get through not just this year not just this weekend, but we'll get through the four years together. And now looking back, those four years flew by and the people that I was roommates with, company mates with, I'm still very good friends with, stay in touch with them. So I am very thankful for that weekend that I went through to kind of drive home the point, which is ironic. Again, another ironic story is at the end of freshman year, just before doing that weekend, in my mind, I was like, this is such a waste of time. I can't believe we have to do this at the end of a, of a year of, of running around like a, a freshman. I can't believe we have to do this to drive it home the point. But sure enough, it was a huge realization in my eyes that I was part of something big. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. I like the way you put it. It really does bring it all home and, and brings to light that it is a tradition and, and a valuable tradition. And it's what makes America the country that it is. So you graduate and then you're immediately shipped off to Southern California. No, I actually, I didn't report out to Buds until September of that year. So I graduated May and reported out to Buds in September. So during that whole summer, they have to do something with you. So I got a pretty cush job for three months there at the Naval Academy. And basically our whole job was to work out, stay in shape and get ready for Buds. And then once every three or four weeks, we would run a one week kind of introduction to Naval Special Warfare. Now we have graduated, right? And the folks who had just wrapped up their freshman year, their plebe year, they're doing the summer in between their freshman and their sophomore year. Right. They have to do training. So we would run them through one week of training, introducing them to what we knew about Naval Special Warfare, which, I mean, in all honesty, wasn't a whole lot because we weren't even SEALs yet, right? We had just been selected to be BUDS candidates. So we were candidates to be BUDS candidates. So anyway, we worked out swam a lot, ran a lot, and ate a lot because there's data that shows that folks who show up to Buds with too little body fat, they don't do too well in the cold water. So we try to, even though we're working out, swimming a lot, running a lot, we try to pack on some pounds. So that was my job basically for, for three months. Then I got out to Buds as a very junior ensign, you know, the first rank in the Navy. Yeah. And I went out there with four other friends of mine that I'd graduated from the academy with. And we showed up in our whites, our white uniform. And the uniform of the day there as a buzz candidate is greens, the camis. Yeah. And we show up in our white uniforms and, you know, we stick out like, well, sore thumbs. And of course, all the instructors are eyeing us like, yeah, you guys are going to get yours. So, yeah, bottom line, uh, I ended up classing up in October, ended up getting pneumonia, got rolled into the, the following class that classed back up in January, classed up right after Christmas holidays, 
went through a winter hell week out there, which are kind of infamous in the teams. We have longer nights and colder weather and bigger waves. So we always like to rub it in the, the summer hell week guys' guys' faces. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the but, East and West but, Coast Marines, man. Oh, Those yeah, guys totally go at it. The Hollywood Marines. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. funny. But, uh, yeah. well, you know, everybody has, not everybody, but most people have heard about Navy SEAL training and BUDS. And, yeah. you know, it's not a cakewalk. And, you know, I've read several books and, you know, you just hear things about it. And my personal belief, not having ever done anything that hardcore, is that, you know, it takes it takes everything, man. It takes the complete package. It takes the mind, the body, the willpower, the perseverance, because guys are ringing that bell quite a bit. Isn't that true? Oh, yeah, no doubt. It's crazy how often it rings in the first week. And then it doesn't ring a whole lot again for like the second, third and fourth week. And then Hell Week comes, and for the first couple of days, it rings like nonstop. It's pretty wild. And that's uh, for those who are maybe not familiar with budge training. That's what you have to do to quit. You have to go and ring the bell three times, and that's basically dropping on request, D-O-R. So, yeah, it definitely takes more than just being tough physically. you got to be tough all around mentally, physically. Uh, have some type of spiritual background, whether that's Christianity or whatever you were to call some higher power. But, yeah, in my eyes, you have to believe something bigger than yourself when you're laying there in the rack though and then you guys are hearing that bell what are you guys thinking about oh man when you hear that bell honestly there's a little piece of you that's like oh man that lucky sob now he gets to go and get warm gets to uh get a cup of hot cocoa and get a blanket wrapped around him and then he doesn't have to come back but then you also look to your left and right and you've got guys who are just studs, right? And you're like, well, I want to be a stud like that guy. I'm going to hang around. I'm going to stay. And, and I'm also not, I want to be, be perfectly clear here. People that show up at Buds and, and ring out, there's some studs that ring out. And there's even, I mean, there are people who are tough mentally who ring out. They just decide that that's not what they wanted to do. They, they got into something that they just didn't want to be a part of and then they go out and do great things elsewhere but at the end of hell week you look around and you know those folks who've been with you in that crucible in that qualification in that whatever you want to call it that trial by fire those are some tough dudes that you're standing beside and you can kind of hold your head high to be amongst that group so i was i was humbled to be amongst the group of studs. I mean, we started with like 180 guys, started Buds day one. By Hell Week, we were down to like 118. And by the time we were done with Buds, we had 24 guys from the original class. That's pretty phenomenal. I'm not making any joke about it, you know, or understatement. That is the best of the best. And that's why you guys get those hardcore missions, you know, because they've got to give them the guys that are going to perform. And it just, whenever I think about Navy SEALs, I think about, holy cow, it's like we have these superhumans on the face of the planet that are doing things that need to be done. And I'm just glad and thankful you made it through and you're safe and you're almost at the end of your career here, but you've got another career coming up. But before we get to yep. what you're doing now with mindfulness and all that, John, talk to us about, so you, you earned your trident. What was that day like? <laughs> yeah, that was a little crazy, man. This was soon after they had, they used to, at the SEAL team. So you went through BUDS and then you would go to each respective SEAL team. And at the SEAL teams, you would go through some separate training and you would pin on your trident, you know, six months to a year after you've been there at that SEAL team. Well, they found that some teams were training guys better than others and there wasn't any consistency across the board. 
there wasn't any consistency across. So what they wanted to do was have consistency. So a brand new seal from the East Coast was just the same as a brand new seal from the West Coast. Right. A brand new seal from SEAL Team 7 was the same as a guy from SEAL Team 10. So they developed SEAL qualification training out there in Coronado, California. So right after BUDS, you go out to jump school and then you go to SEAL qualification training or SQT. And that's another six-month program. You wrap that up. And at the end of that, that's kind of the big graduation ceremony now that's where parents come out that's where you you know you get pinned with your trident which is all well and good but this is also let's see this is in 2003 that we got pinned january february 2003 and this was before youtube was super popular and you had seen all these marines getting their jump wings pinned on you know like punched into your chest right and i mean in, in all honesty that's what we did we all punched our tridents into one another's chest and we had some of the older team guys punch the trident this is after the party with our folks and our girlfriends is over this is like the private party afterwards <laughs> yeah stupid looking back on it there's no reason to do all that but it was kind of this false bravado thing anyway got the uh, trident like literally pinned into my chest and knew that I was one of the brotherhood part of a, again, I, I've said this several times through the show, but part of something bigger than myself. And then we had also, I got to back this up a little bit, John, I was in buds when the planes hit the towers in nine 11 and they locked down buds. Like we ended up having guys walking around the compound with their weapons slung and, and ready to go. They were checking everybody at the gates. I mean, it was like hours long at the gates just to get into the buds compound so we knew as we were going through buds that the world was going to be a much different place and even going through buds and sqt seals were going overseas to afghanistan and guys had been killed so we we're like hey this is this is real right it's not just stuff you watch in the movies and you know that in the movies the bad guys can never shoot well let me tell you the, the bad guys they can't shoot really well but they can shoot well enough to kill us and the bullets whether they're shot well or not if they find a home in, in your body it's going to hurt or it's going to kill so that's kind of when when we realized hey yeah we are definitely in for something so we went from sqt out to our seal teams and you know get to our seal teams and we start training for uh for afghanistan at the time we hadn't actually let me back this up at the time so 2003 we had gone into iraq and then bush had actually declared victory just, yeah. you know, we, we all know what happened there. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, we went back to Iraq multiple times since then and been back to Afghanistan. Yeah, that was what happened after training. Yeah, everybody, you know, Marcus Luttrell obviously was one of the storied SEAL team guys that came out of Afghanistan. And we all know about Operation Redbird and how that went down. Did you know any of those guys? Yeah, it's actually Operation Red Wings. But yeah, Red Wings. Um, yeah, I won't go into too much detail, but I was there. When that all happened, Danny Dietz was in my platoon. I knew all of them. Mike Murphy and I were flip-flopping operations. Mm -hmm. So Mike Murphy was from SDB, SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1, which is in Hawaii. And at the time, I was at SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 2, SDB Team 2. And those teams have SDV, SEAL Delivery Vehicles. They're miniature submersibles. And there weren't any missions at the time for the SDVs. So they ended up attaching us to SEAL Team 10. That's how SDV Team 1 and SDV Team 2 ended up having guys attached to SEAL Team 10. So yeah, we were out there in Bagram at uh, Camp Ouellette, named after Brian Roulette, who had also been killed out there. And yeah, Murph and I, because we were both from an SDV team, we were flip-flopping on operations that we would lead, and this was the one that he ended up getting. 
Murph ended up obviously as as you well know, yeah. ended up dying on that operation along with Danny Dietz, along with Matt Axelson on the ground. And then the sixteen guys, eight SEALs and eight night stalkers died that same night when they were called in, or that same day when they were called in for a quick reaction force. But yeah, I was out there, I knew all those guys. Flew back, actually flew back to the States with Danny's and Murph's bodies. So yeah, intimately familiar with that operation in that time. Well, you know, sorry about that. I know that I had met Marcus's brother out in Texas several years ago, and I know that Marcus. Yeah, doing, Morgan. Yeah, Morgan, and we were doing a uh, a veteran fundraiser out there for an army guy that was missing his legs out there in San Antonio, and then my company actually had started working with the Lone Survivor Foundation for a while back in the day. You know, the story is it's a sad story, and it really speaks to the Navy SEAL tradition and, and the Navy SEAL mission. And like we stated earlier, you know, the toughest missions get sent to the toughest guys. And I can tell you this straight up, man, I know that I can sleep good at night knowing that there's Navy SEAL members out there doing the things that most people don't want to do. That's just the way it is. And I, again, thanks for sharing that story, John. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry about your buddies, man. Uh, yeah, they died doing what, what they signed up to do. And and I know it was an honor. It's definitely an honor on my part to serve with them. Obviously, they didn't want to die, but they died serving besides their brothers and, and for protecting and serving their country. So it is what it is looking back on it. Yeah, well, I'm glad you made it back. So, you know, any, any more on those deployments? You know, you deployed several times, so obviously you got lots of ground time. And water time in some dangerous places. <laughs> is there anything besides the mission that you just described? Is there anything that you can remember in all of those deployments that just sticks out kind of like, not at the, like the Naval Academy, but like an aha moment or a moment when you just went, wow, this is real life. This is really happening. Anything like that, John? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was any one particular instance so much as basically every time I lined up to get on an aircraft and that aircraft was taking us somewhere or lined up to get in a vehicle and that vehicle I knew was taking us into a real world combat operation. That was very eye opening and you feel very vulnerable. And then when you get out of that aircraft, you get out of that vehicle and you line up on the on the wall of a compound, knowing that you have enemy inside that compound or you line up on the wall of a building, knowing that you have enemy inside that building and you, you have to make entry. That was I'll say scary. I mean, it was scary. The thing is that, you know, the guys that I, I was with, they were experiencing the same things I was. At the same time, there's a little bit of excitement. And they're like, hey, I'm here to do what I've trained to do. It's going to get ugly through this door, but this is the ugly work that I have trained to do. And, if you know, nobody else is here to do it. So those were kind of the eye-opening moments throughout my deployments was, hey, one, I'm human and I'm vulnerable, right? I mean, we I'd already known Danny and all those guys, Murph, Axe, and all those guys that had died in Operation Red Wings. And then I, I knew that we were all human and vulnerable, even though we're stacked outside the door and we're all in our body armor and we're better outfitted than most of the people. Well, most of the, even the U.S. forces out there were better outfitted than them, but we're definitely better outfitted than than the enemy. But we're still human, right? And like I said before, if a bullet finds home in your body, it's either going to hurt or it's going to kill you. So there was definitely a sense of fear uh, at the same time as you had that sense of excitement. 
Well, thanks for sharing that. Let's talk about this then. So how tell us about the transition from elite warrior to a mindfulness teacher. How does, <laughs> you know, because we're going yeah. from we're going from yeah. a, a job that requires many times taking a human life, you know, that wants to kill you. So I get it. And it's something yeah. it's something that has to be done in conflict and then make that transition from military warrior to human warrior is what I would call it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's if you'd asked me even four years ago what I thought I'd be doing now. I mean, I'm still active duty, but I'm transitioning and off ramping. But if you'd asked me, I would never have guessed that I'd be talking about mindfulness and meditation regularly. And I wouldn't think about that I would be involved with the nonprofit. But how I got to this spot was I actually had come back from deployments and I struggled with a little bit of depression for because I felt like there was a lack of emission, lack of purpose. You know, coming back and training is one thing, but it's not like you're overseas. And then I also going back to whole Operation Red Wings, there was a little bit of survivor guilt that I struggled with. I was talking with multiple counselors, both psychologists and psychiatrists. And finally, which, you know, I think that there's a lot of value in, in speaking with people. But finally, one of the counselors was like, hey, have you ever tried meditation? And, and I had tried it when I was at the academy. My dad had recommended it and I had tried it, but I just found that my mind bounced around too much. And, you know, when I was at the academy, there weren't smartphones with guided meditation apps. It was just literally sitting down and trying to trying to focus your mind. And I just didn't know how to do it. So fast forward to about three or four years ago, meet this uh, psychologist, he recommends it to me. He recommended mindfulness and meditation. So one, in my mind, meditators were kind of hippies or monks. And as a SEAL, you know, six foot two, 220 pound SEAL, I was like, well, I don't fit that mold. And there's no way that I'm going to tell my guys that I'm meditating for what it is I'm trying to get better from. And then I didn't even know what mindfulness was. Right. So this guy, psychologist, God bless him, man. He, he sat me down and he he was like, okay, well, here's kind of why it works. Here's the science, the physiology behind it. Here's, you know, what's happening to your brain as you're meditating, you know, in the instance, and then over time, what happens to your brain. And then he showed me a list of very high performing individuals that also didn't fit that mold of the hippie or the monk. And so uh, I was like, all right, well, if these people are trying it, I'll try it out. And then I was like, oh, okay, great. That's what I'll do for meditation. But what is mindfulness? And he explained, you know, the difference between mindfulness and meditation. I'll get into that here in a second. But going back to the meditation piece, I went home for about two weeks and I just started meditating with some very basic apps on my phone and then realized that I wasn't getting the benefits that kind of he had promised. And I went back and I was like, hey, I've been meditating for two weeks now. Uh, I don't feel a whole lot better. And he was like, well, that's like going to the gym for two weeks and thinking that you're going to come out. Looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah, it takes time, right? It's not something that you're going to see a difference in day to day to day. But over time, you know, three, four months, when you look back in the mirror, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I look different. I feel different. Well, same thing with meditation. So I'd started practicing meditation regularly for like two months now. And that's when I started to feel differences. So I went back. I was like, all right, yep, I got it. You convinced me. So now tell me more about this mindfulness stuff. And so the mindfulness piece, that's you can meditate mindfully mindfulness meditation is what it's called. And then you can meditate, you know, you can do transcendental meditation, you can do yoga nidra, which is another type of meditation. There's, there's tons of different types of meditation. And that's kind of if you envision a Venn diagram, you've got meditation in one circle, and then you've got mindfulness in another, and there's overlap between the two. 
the overlap is mindfulness meditation. Yeah. But then that sep- that separate circle is mindfulness. And uh, what the hell is that? What does that look like by itself, right? Well, that is being present, being aware of the here and the now, being very intentional about paying attention to your senses, paying attention to who's talking to you and what it is they're saying, paying attention to the smells, the sounds, all the bodily sensations that you're experiencing in the here and the now, and then also not being judgmental about it. So when I say not being judgmental, you know, you may be experiencing pain or you may be experiencing sadness. Well, mindful to be mindful about that pain or that sadness is just to acknowledge it, accept it and realize sadness is not necessarily bad. And pain is not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily good either. So you don't want to judge it either way. So that's what mindfulness is. It's basically being aware of the here and the now without assigning any type of judgment to the to the here and now. You know, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, been around, it's been around for like thousands of years, yeah. and, you know, centuries. And, you know, what helped to get me through my traumatic brain injury was that I had been six year practitioner of yoga, which is a certain type of meditation, physical. Sure is. As you well oh, know. Yeah. But, you know, I heard a quote the other day, John, and it said that the sacred is the eternal now. And I thought about that and I'm like, there you go. There's mindfulness meditation in one sentence. The yeah. Sacred. I love that. Sacred is the eternal is now. Is the eternal now. And I get it, man. I hear I hear exactly where you're coming from. And I can't say enough about its effect on me. And I know that you're doing things to help people with it, too. You know, tell us about your duties with veterans path and yeah what kind of impact you know where do you see its impact and and why is it important for people to help help that organization sure so yeah a little bit about the organization and i'll tell you what my role is veterans path it was founded by two women in berkeley california lee lesser and chris fortin and at one point they were kind of anti war and they felt that being anti-war you need to be anti-military and then they realized that those two are not necessarily one and the same you can be you can be against the war or against war in general but you don't have to be anti-military and they saw that a lot of these military folks were coming back and they were i wouldn't say necessarily all struggling but they were dealing with some demons of their own they realized hey you know what these these vets are coming back and they are feeling like a a sense of kind of that, what I was talking about earlier, that loss of mission, loss of purpose, loss of identity. And then there are people who are coming back with PTSD and there's veterans who are coming back with uh, military sexual trauma and there's, you know, they've got PTSD from that. So initially it was founded to address the PTSD and the military sexual trauma. So they, Lee and Chris, introduced vets to mindfulness and meditation, much like that one counselor introduced me but then they do it in outdoor settings, typically outdoor settings or based around some type of physical activity, you know, which a lot of veterans embrace. And then the, the whole the whole purpose of Veterans Path is to get veterans back to a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation and honor. And that's that's where the word path, peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor even comes from in our name. Right. Again, they founded in 2008. And then last year, they were looking for a new executive director to take over. And then they were they looked to me first. I couldn't do it because I'm still active duty. And the, the executive director position takes a lot of time. They ended up picking a, a much more qualified candidate than myself, a guy named David Drake, who had who had run a nonprofit before, specifically a nonprofit for veterans. And he's got a he's got a very mindful background. 
Right. He's uh, done done a lot of Zen work. Lived in Japan for a long time. He's a big Aikido expert. He's the executive director. And then I came on in November of last year, 2019, as the deputy executive director, still on active duty, but underneath this program called the SOCOM Care Coalition Fellowship, which allows me to work for Veterans Path while still getting paid by the military as it's basically setting me up to off-ramp from the military so that I, you know, I don't get all out and flail. What I do now in the deputy executive director capacity is I do a lot of what Dave does. I look for fundraising. I look for opportunities to have some type of strategic partnership with other veteran service organizations. Funny enough, I have my own podcast, John, that I bring on people who've gone through our retreats, or I bring on other people who practice mindfulness and meditation with the intent there being to break down the stigma that kind of surrounds these things around that surrounds meditation, mindfulness, and even mental health just in general. Because I mean, I, I had that same stigma I had that same stigma about mental health, you know, when I was a very junior officer and then and then realized, hey, this is something that you need to do to stay healthy, just like going to the gym. You got to maintain your mental health just like you do your physical health. Yeah, it's called it's called self-care. I get it. So, you know, just yeah. real quickly. Yeah. So you run in these retreats. What What is the typical person profile that comes to these retreats? Yeah. So, again, kind of uh, historically, it's been folks who have struggled with the loss of identity, loss of purpose, loss of mission, or post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't like to call it post-traumatic stress disorder because I think that if you're exposed to traumatic stress and you don't respond a certain way, then then you may have a disorder. But I think that folks who are traumatized by traumatic stress, that's perfectly normal. But anyhow, those who have been exposed to post-traumatic stress or military sexual trauma, that was the profile. Now, Dave and I are, we just got the organization turned over to us in November as the executive director and deputy executive director. The profile is expanding because we feel that People don't necessarily even know that they're struggling with stress, anxiety, or depression until it's too late. And if we only focus on those who have been diagnosed with PTS, then we're only going to get a very small portion of those who need it. So we're that's opening great, up. That's actually a great point. Yeah, right. I mean, like so many people don't know it. So many people won't admit to it. So if we open up the aperture a little bit to where we offer it to all transitioning service members, and veterans, then we can capture more people who may be struggling and they don't even know it. And then they could come and say, hey, I'm going to this retreat and they don't have to admit that they're struggling. And even admitting that there's a stigma that surrounds that. Yeah, we're, we're going through a strategic pivot right now where we're hoping to implement what we've done with those who suffer from PTS and military sexual trauma to a larger swath of the military population. Well, you know what you're doing? You're making it real life treatment. My PTS started at a very young age between the third and fourth grades. And oh, wow. I knew all about stigmas. And, and what happened to me was a childhood assault on, uh, you know, I went from a bright eyed, trusting guy to a zombie, like literally in 90 seconds. And it troubled oh, me all, all through college and kind of stuffed it and compartmentalized it. And every time something would go good in my life, I'd always find a way to kind of sabotage it. But it was very successful in a small business for 23 years. We led guided trips to the Andes. We did all kinds of hardcore stuff. And I just, I'm just real briefly, because this is how important this is what you just said. And then I had a car accident, alcohol fueled car accident. It was my fault. Yeah. I suffered a little head bump and the head bump 
world spun out of control. Those dark, dirty demons came out and almost lost my wife, almost lost everything, and then got it back on track after that call to that crisis center. And yeah, thank God that I had had yoga and meditation and background because I think that was the foundation that got me through the next eight years of recovery and healing. So what you're doing, man, and what Veterans Path is doing, and we talked about this before we went live with the recording, was it's badly, badly needed in today's crazy world. Right. Because by taking those people through your programs, John, and you already know this, that you're making the world a better place because you're making more versatile, vulnerable humans better. And that mission, man, I'm telling you, it's righteous. There's no, there's who would not want to help fund an operation like that? I just don't know. But tell right. us about one of your, if you can think one or two of your success stories with Veterans Path. Can you think of one person? Oh, Yeah. You know, or- yeah, man. One great, great guy. He's actually what we call a veteran leader in the organization. He came on my podcast a couple months back. His name's Matt Huffman. He was in the military, in the army, I believe. I may have screwed that up, but I think he was in the army. But he was struggling with drugs. He was struggling with getting in and out of jail or being in and out of jail. And he ended up getting introduced to mindfulness and meditation through Veterans Path. And he says that basically the dark part of his life or the dark stage of his life is what ended up saving him. So he had to go through that trial to be introduced to mindfulness and meditation. And now he's a very successful trial lawyer out in California, you know, just crushing it, doing doing great work. His name's Matt Hoffman. And I know that he would be comfortable with me sharing that because he shared it on our podcast. But yeah, he's, he's one of the success stories. We've got numerous success stories, men and women from both traumatic experiences on the battlefield and traumatic experiences with military sexual trauma. And this has proven, just like you mentioned, how your yoga and meditation helped you. This has proven to be a life-changing and literally life-saving practice. It's helped innumerable people across the world through Veterans Path. We're able to specifically focus on you know, the veterans and now soon-to-be transitioning service members as well to ideally bring that, you know, that suicide rate that we all hear in the news all the time where it's 22 a day. Uh, and I'm sure we all have known one or two service members at least that oh, have yeah. taken their lives. Well, this is going to help to address that because we talked about the stress that comes from the battlefield. We talked about the stress that comes from military sexual trauma or sexual trauma just as a whole. But there's also a lot of stress just in the military, picking up and moving your family around. Divorce rates are super high. Op tempo is very stressful. Transitioning out of the military is stressful. And we talked about that loss of mission, loss of purpose, loss of identity. When you hang that uniform up and you've been able to, you know, for if it's five years or if it's 30 years, at one point you've been able to walk into a room wearing a uniform and instantly somebody can look at your chest and say, okay, this person is, you know, a commander. This person is in the infantry. This person has this, this, this badge and has this different rank and you can basically size up somebody. Well, as soon as you hang up that uniform and you wear civilian clothes into work the next day, you go from being a hero to being a zero, or at least that's what people perceive. And that lack of identity, so many people hang their identity on that that uniform. And when they hang that uniform up, they hang up that identity and they're like, well, now, now what? We are hoping to address that as well, because that is a unique stress in and of itself. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what we do. That's definitely an outstanding mission. So, you know, a couple more questions we're 
We're getting ready to close out here, John. But on this on this conversation, man, you know we'll, we're going to get together again. But let me ask you this: There's this proverbial belief that all veterans are broken. Every time we see something in the media, the first thing people want to know, especially if it's something really crazy, was was that person in the military? What can you tell our civilian listeners about combat veterans? What can you let them know? Oh man, I would say that I mean it, it's humanity, right? I mean, if if we're exposed to something traumatic, we're going to respond a certain way. But I definitely wouldn't say that we're broken. I would say we are human beings. We are all exposed to different stresses throughout our lives, whether it's you know a car wreck like you were mentioning before, whether it's a divorce, whether it's an assault, whether it's a, a robbery. We're all exposed to something different. And we're and what Dave Drake, I, I love his saying, and I mean, this isn't his, but he says it to me all the time. Is veterans are not broken, they're bent. And being bent is not necessarily bad. It's a sign of something that you went through. It's like a scar. Having a scar doesn't mean that you can't survive or you can't function in society. I would say that combat veterans, they're going to be natural leaders. They're going to deal better. Typically, they're going to deal well with stress or they're going to handle different tasks that you give to them differently they're gonna they're gonna be very task oriented yeah. i mean they're a commodity they, they should be looked at as that sure combat veterans get a bad rap or they can because of what's in the news but that is not all there is out there there are more combat veterans out there serving this country outside of uniform and they're they're crushing it. They're doing great work for this country in and out of private sector, public sector, nonprofits. They're doing great work. And what you hear about is the veteran who was struggling with post-traumatic stress and beat up on his or her spouse. That can happen anywhere. But as soon as it's a veteran, that's the part that the news likes to highlight. And that's, that is the exception, not the rule. 100% that is the exception, not the rule. Excellent point. So, you know, put your humankind and your Navy officer hat on. And yeah. what's your message, sir, to somebody who served and they're struggling in their transition? What would you tell them? A couple of things. One, if you have the opportunity to start early, kind of figuring out what your transition is going to look like, do that because that's going to help with the stress of it. If you, If, however, you're forced into a situation where you can't look at your transition until you're six months out, four months out, whatever the case, I mean, some guys are getting guys and girls are getting medically discharged from the military and they only have three, four months to plan their transition. And that can, that can be very stressful. Well, I mean, I'm going to sound like I'm beating a drum here, but look into the practices of mindfulness and meditation, spend 15 minutes in the morning, trying to meditate, spend your time through your day, trying to be mindful and in the moment, whether that's driving to work and paying attention, you know, to the, to the road and not just blaring your, your music or the daily news show that you're listening to, Try to pay attention to what's going on around you. Be mindful and present in the moment. And that can actually help to reduce your stress levels. And then if there are veterans who are listening to your show or for the veterans who are listening to your show, I know there are that listen, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. It's just J-O-N McCaskill, M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L. And I'd, uh, I'd be happy to talk with anyone who has any questions about either transition or mindfulness and meditation or veterans path. Happy to talk with anyone about that. Awesome, man. You bagged that second question that I was going to ask. Third question, but uh, <laughs> you're ahead of me here on this. But but it's all good. Let me ask you this. Think about this, John. Do you have a personal mantra? I don't mean your personal mantra that you live by every day. Yeah, man. Uh, it's not something that I, uh, I have written on my wall or anything, but a couple of things. One is that we're all in this together. And I think that's never been more appropriate than today in this COVID-19 
coronavirus pandemic. I don't think in my lifetime, maybe 9-11, you know, all Americans came together in 9-11. And this is the first time I can remember the entire world coming together for one purpose, and that's to stop the spread of, of this coronavirus. So the first one is we're all in this together. And then the second one is you can always do better. So I think that no matter what you're doing, you can always do that thing better, or you can do better as a, as a human being. And, and I think really those two mantras kind of go together hand in hand. You can always work together better as well. So yeah, those are my things, man. Definitely awesome mantras. And we appreciate that. You know, our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, our conversation has been with U.S. Navy SEAL Commander, John McCaskill who's getting ready to make that transition out. He's in a safe place with his family up there in Virginia Way. And he's doing some phenomenal things with Veterans Path, helping veterans make that tough transition and to deal with the challenges of their own lives and traumas. And it's a mission that needs to be had. And it's a mission that John and his associates are doing in fine fashion. And I I just want to thank you for spending time with me, John, on Straight out of combat radio and for serving our country, it means a lot to a lot of people. And you're a member of a tradition. And I just thank you for that. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for the opportunity to come on the show. Thanks for the support that you're giving to to veterans and service members and, and the message that you're putting out there. And uh, as far as my service, it was a complete honor and privilege to to serve. So thank you guys for the opportunity. Well, you're welcome. God bless America, John. We hope to see you soon and uh, be safe and stay well, my friend. You too, John. Thank you. Thanks, man. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Save us all. Down.